This is a picture of our son, S-U-N, in case you're wondering where the family resemblance is. <laughs> son. If you were to approach the sun as, as I understand it, did a little bit of research, this always makes me hesitant because somebody's going to come up afterwards. Well, actually, but as you get close to the sun, it'll probably be one of my kids, the outermost area of the sun, the corona, the temperatures can reach around 1 million degrees Fahrenheit and up to several million degrees Fahrenheit. This kind of hot. The core of the sun is estimated to be, and estimated because I don't think anything could possibly measure this, around 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. The very center core of the sun. That is, uh, in scientific terms, crazy hot. It's ridiculously hot. So the next time, you know, summer in Rochester, and I, I know we're looking forward to those days again at some point, but when we have one of those really hot days and you're thinking, oh, it's just hot, just think. It could always be worse. This is an ice cube. On its surface, pretty sure it's around 32 degrees Fahrenheit. If its temperature gets over 32 degrees Fahrenheit, it ceases to be an ice cube and becomes water. Good, you're awake. That's good. It becomes water. At 212 degrees Fahrenheit, it ceases to become water and becomes steam. At about 5,500 degrees Fahrenheit, do you know what it becomes? Plasma. Or hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah, it, the plasma causes it to break down into its individual atoms. So, so, ice cube and sun. Odd couple. There's no way that this ice cube could come close to the sun. It is physically impossible. Their natures are completely contrary. So I want to ask a question. I've used this illustration before. I think it is so helpful to understand what we're going to be talking about this morning with the Old Testament law and the tabernacle. What would happen or need to happen if the sun, this burning star in our solar system, saw this ice cube floating way out in outer space and said, I want to have a relationship with that ice cube. I want to be friends with that ice cube. I want us to be close, personal friends. I want that ice cube to be where I am. Well, they've got a massive problem, don't they? Their natures are contrary to one another. And the ice cube could not physically exist in the presence of the heat of the sun. Now, I know this seems absurd. It's extreme. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's, it's just so far beyond anything we could possibly imagine. But there is another relationship I want to suggest that is even more ridiculous than this. And it is a holy God loving sinful people. We don't understand how holy God is, and we don't understand how sinful we are. 
Our God is so holy that sinners cannot bear to stand in his presence. To be in the presence of a holy God as a sinful being is absolute horror and agony far beyond anything our world can come up with for Halloween. It is terrible. Our natures are so incompatible. And yet, all over Scripture, we know that our holy God wants to have a relationship with us sinful people. We are in this sermon series that I'm calling Focal Point. It's looking at this big picture of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and seeing how Jesus is the focus of, the focal point of all of Scripture, both Old and New Testament. We've gone through how God created us, how he is the author of life, how he created us to be in a relationship with him. We looked at how we rebelled against him in the fall. We looked at the aftermath of that and how horrible it was. We looked at God reaching back into sinful humanity to establish a relationship with this man named Abraham and his offspring, the Israelites. And we've begun to trace their history, as scripture does, into this time when they're They're in uh, slavery in Egypt. And then we looked last week as God brought them up out of Egypt miraculously and he saved them. But even just that beginning of the Bible, that, that early part of the story, we see already a holy God wanting to have a relationship with sinful, rebellious people. So the question becomes, now what? What's it going to look like for a holy God to have a relationship with sinful people. How can this possibly work without his holiness wiping us out? How can ice stand in the presence of the sun? How can a sinner be in a relationship with a holy God? And the beginning to that, to answer that question, or to help us begin to answer that question, we look to the Old Testament law. Because as I thought about an ice cube and the sun, I thought what the sun could do is begin to bring that ice cube close. Close enough to begin to know the sun. And that sun could put a barrier around the ice cube. Maybe a little, those old styrofoam boxes. I don't even know if those are legal anymore. But some sort of like igloo container that would just protect the ice cube from the heat of the sun for a little bit so it could get a little bit closer. And get to know the sun a little bit more. And in many ways, that's exactly what the Old Testament law is. It is a buffer between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of people so that God can get closer and bring his people closer for them to know him. It does not solve the problem, but it is a temporary solution to enhance this relationship and keep it going. And this is why it's important to us. Because we learn so much about God's holiness and our sinfulness and what it takes to overcome that problem by looking at the Old Testament law. And as we're going to do today, looking at the tabernacle. Now, it's a little artificial to separate the tabernacle from the Old Testament law because they're so meshed together. 
But for the sake of the sermon series, I think it's going to be helpful to split these two. So for today, we're going to look at the tabernacle, what it is, why it's important. And then we're going to look at the rest of the law. We're not going to look at every single one. We're not going to read every single one. But I want you to understand a big picture of what the law was about and what it meant to the Israelites and what it still means to us today. So first, we need to understand the importance of the tabernacle. I'll explain in a moment what it is in case you're not familiar with it, but let's get at the importance of it. If you know the story of Exodus a little bit, God saves his people out of Egypt. We talked about that last week, brings them to the Red Sea, parts the sea, brings his people through on dry ground. We talked about that last week. Miracle, God saving his people, complete act of his mercy and his grace. He then leads them in Exodus chapters uh, 15 to 19. He leads them through the wilderness to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And there he's going to meet with them and give them his law. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, God tells Moses to give this message to the people. Says, you yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. At the heart of the Old Testament law that God is going to give to Moses to give to the Israelites, is this understanding of God saying, I have claimed you, people of Israel. I've claimed you as my own. And I'm setting you apart for a purpose. They are to be his representatives on this earth. Their life, their culture, their relationships, their families, their public worship, all of it is to be a testimony to who God is, this God who has saved them. I've said it many times already, and I think it bears repeating. The law was not what saved them. God saved them out of Egypt. The law was what communicated to them what the relationship was going to look like. Throughout Scripture, grace is always first, and obedience follows grace. And it is the same today. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that is based on grace. You can't earn it. But the New Testament is equally full of things. Now that you have a relationship with God, here is how you are to live. So it's important to understand what it is that saves us, but also important to not neglect the importance of obedience. Now, God is describing what this relationship between him and the Israelites are going to be or is going to look like. And the key thing I want us to take away from the entirety of the law, including the tabernacle, is that being in a relationship with God changes you. It has to change you. God never draws someone into a relationship and leaves them the way they are. God does not grab hold of somebody just to bless them and make them happy with whatever pursuits or whatever desires they want to follow. That's not the pattern in Scripture. God brings a sinner into a relationship with himself, and he changes that person. The Israelites, just like us today, were to be God's representatives. 
his ambassadors, a living example of what it looks like to be in a relationship with God. Now, in Exodus chapters 20 through 40, all the way to the end of Exodus, God's going to give them his law. The basics of what it's going to look like to be in a relationship with him. Now, maybe you've heard this story. You know about this man, Moses. He goes up on the the mountaintop and, and God gives him the law. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He comes back down and the people are in rebellion and he's got the, the two tablets with the Ten Commandments and he smashes them down. Maybe in your picture, he looks a little like Charlton Heston. Okay? The problem is that order of events is missing a whole bunch of stuff. It's not entirely accurate. So I want to bring some nuance to the view to understand what actually was going on. In Exodus chapter 20 to 23, in Exodus 20, you'll see the Ten Commandments. We'll look at those next week briefly. But in 20 to 23, God meets with Moses up on the mountain and the Israelites are down below. And and it's actually not clear if the Israelites are directly hearing the voice of God or if Moses is just being an intermediary. But this is not Moses going up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. That comes later. This is like a preliminary meeting. And God gives Moses some preliminary laws. Hey guys, this is what the relationship's going to look like. Here's what you're agreeing to. Moses goes back down, talks to the people, talks to the elders of Israel, and they agree, yes, we are agreeing to what God is setting out for us. And then in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 and 10, there's this beautiful passage that I got to say, as a kid and, and even a teenager, even beginning to study scripture, I never knew this. But in Exodus 24, verses 9 and 10, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, this is onto the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. I love those three little verses there. Here in the Old Testament, God invites the Israelites up on the mountainside to share a meal with him. Could you imagine sitting down in the presence of the Lord God Almighty and sharing a meal together as an expression of the relationship that you share with him? I hope you can, because that's exactly what we do on the first Sunday of every month when we take communion. We are remembering Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in the flesh eating with his people. It's this beautiful picture of the kind of relationship that God wants with his people. Then, after that, Moses goes up onto the mountain. The Ten Commandments have already been given. And he goes up to receive the rest of the bulk of the law. Some of the law will be given later as Moses meets with with God in the temple or in the tabernacle and the tent of meeting. Some of that's going to come later. But what's interesting in Exodus is that the bulk of what God communicates for these 40 days and 40 nights is all about the tabernacle. What it is, how they are to make it how they are to set up, how they are to use it, who is to serve there, what the people serving there are going to wear, what they're going to do. It's all about the tabernacle. That's why this is important. 
When God begins to give his law to the people, and he wants to start with the most important fundamental thing, saying, you've got to get this right. Please understand this is central to everything we're about to do. He gives them the tabernacle. That's why the tabernacle is so crucial to understand. If we're going to understand not only the Old Testament law, but God's relationship with the Israelites, and I would suggest our relationship still with God today. But there's another way that we see the importance of the tabernacle. For those of you who don't know, the tabernacle was a tent. It was a special tent that God commanded them to set up. And whenever they walked through the wilderness, they would pack up the tabernacle. And whenever they stopped, they would unpack the tabernacle and set it up. And they would always place the tabernacle right in the middle of their camp. Imagine you're walking through the wilderness. And and you come up over a little crest of a hill. And there in the valley sprawled out before you is a massive group of people, a couple million strong. Tents all over. And there in the middle of those people is a tent that is more magnificent than anything else. It is set up and it is special and it is clearly different from anything else. It is made with the most rich and wealthy materials. It's surrounded by a fence and people are coming in and out to to do something there. What would you think? Who would you think lives in that tent? in the middle of these people. <coughs> Who would you think? The king. And you would be right. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place among his people. And, and later on, he's going to give them a king, but he chastises them because God was to be their king. The tabernacle was a constant reminder that God himself was dwelling among his people. Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, God says to them, then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. One of the struggles we have, at least I have, maybe you've had it too, when we read through the Old Testament, there's a lot of repetition. In fact, Exodus, this section of Exodus that we're talking about, has a ton of repetition because there's all these laws, set it up this way, and then you get several chapters ahead, and you're starting to read the exact same things, and you're going, wait, I just read this. Because there's chapters of God saying, set it up this way, do it exactly the way I tell you, and then there's chapters where they record, we set it up exactly the way God told us. It was so crucial that they set this up exactly the way that God wanted them to do. Because a holy God is going to dwell in a unique way that has never happened in human history prior to the fall of Adam and Eve. A holy God is going to dwell with his people. That's how important the tabernacle is. Now, to understand more about its importance, we also need to look at what it was. What is the layout of the tabernacle? What was so special about this building, this tent? Now, when I say a tent, I don't mean like a triangular thing or, or a dome-shaped tent that's popped up in the wilderness. This would have looked like a building. They would set up frames. They would cover it with animal skins and cloth. There was a whole to-do to set up this thing. It was a rather permanent-looking structure, but it could be packed up and taken with them. 
I want to walk quickly through a diagram of the tabernacle so that you can understand because everything that God commands them to put in the tabernacle has an impact or teaches us something about our relationship with God. Okay, so here is, this is not the most artistic of drawings, but it's the clearest one I could find to show us what the layout of the tabernacle is. The basic layout is there's a fence. They would set up these upright stands and draw these curtains between them all the way around. So it separated out the area of the the tabernacle. So when you entered the tabernacle area, it was an open courtyard, open to the sky. Okay, but you would walk in there and there were several crucial things that were going on in there that we're going to look at in a second. As you came in through the gate, the entrance here, and went inward, we'll talk about the altar of burnt offerings and the, the laver. I don't know how to say that word. Laver? 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 The basin. That's what I'm going to say. This here is the actual tent of the tabernacle. It was split into two rooms. The outer place being known as the holy place. Uh, The inner place was called the holy of holies or the most holy place. So that was the layout of the tabernacle. Now, what I want us to do is to imagine ourselves walking into the tabernacle. What we would have seen, what we would have experienced, and what it would have taught us about God. The first thing is that if you were camped over here on the west side of the tabernacle... If you're camped on the north or the south or even on the east, you can't just waltz into the tabernacle. God put a fence around the tabernacle. And there was only one way in. One way. You had to walk around to the way that God had provided to get into the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was separated from the rest of the camp of the Israelites so that people would not just walk right into it. Throughout scripture, there is this constant theme that our sin separates us from God. And the tabernacle itself showed that over and over again. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, Our iniquities have separated us from God. We are defiled. We are sinners. We are rebels against a holy God. As you come in through the entrance, the first thing that you would be met with was a massive square area That was basically a giant barbecue. And on it, constantly, animals were being sacrificed. Animals were being killed. Their blood was being poured out. out. Their body was being burnt on the altar. Their carcasses were being taken outside. You would have heard these sounds of death over and over again. You would smell the blood. You would see it on the ground. You would see people walking around with the blood on their hands, carrying buckets of blood. It was disgusting, smelly, and gross. Oh, we have this picture of worship that it's nice. We sit in an air-conditioned, heated auditorium, and, and we got nice, comfy chairs, and we get to worship God, and it's so very comfortable. Worship was not comfortable in the Old Testament. Why? Why was this the first thing that they had to see? Because of what that altar was for. That altar was where the sacrifices were given to pay the price for the people's sin. Soon as they walked into the area of the tabernacle, they would have this constant visual and and smell reminder 
I am a sinner and my sin is gross. And my sin requires life to be given in my place. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything had to be cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Because in their mind, it wasn't that the blood had some cleaning value in it. It's that in the blood was the life of the thing. And so by pouring out the blood of something, you were giving its life in place of the person who actually deserved to die. So every time you walked into the tabernacle area, you would be reminded, that should be me. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. As you proceeded inward a little bit further, and the truth is that's as far as most Israelites would ever go. Past that point, it was really only the priests that served. Here we have the bronze laver, labor. It was a giant basin. In some places, it's called the sea or the ocean. It was just a giant bronze basin filled with water. And it served a very practical as well as spiritual purpose. The priests would have to go into the holy place to perform their, their daily routines in there. But they were outside dealing with these animals and the blood. And they were gross. And they had to wash They had to wash their hands. They had to wash their feet. Every single time before they entered the tabernacle proper, they had to be washed. It's not just that the penalty needs to be paid for our sin. It's that sin has an effect on us. It makes us dirty. It corrupts us. It needs to be washed off. We need to be cleansed. Now, all of these things, or maybe I should say none of these things, were enough. They were to teach the people. They were to put that hedge of protection around them so they could have this closer relationship with God. But Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. That's what this was all about. God, in his love and his mercy, wanted to teach his people, You are sinners. We struggle with that so much today. It it seems like the antithesis of love and mercy to try to emphasize that someone is a sinner, but that's what God did over and over again. You are sinners in need of salvation. Now, I said earlier that the people of Israel, most of them would never make it past this point. They would not enter the tabernacle itself. But the priests, day in and day out, multiple times throughout the day, would go into the holy place, the outermost room. And in the outermost room, there was a lampstand. This lampstand was representative of, of light. Now, this was completely covered. It would have been pitch black in there. That lampstand was the only light. And it was this symbol of God's light, his illumination to his people. There was a table for bread, and every day they would put out 12 loaves of bread, one loaf from, for each of the tribes of Israel, representing this ongoing relationship that God wanted to have with them. It's like God saying, every day I want you to remember, you're, you're coming, you're sitting down in my presence, you're having a meal with me. There was an altar of incense. 
This was used as a symbol of the prayers of God's people going up in the presence of God. So there in this room, there's this visual representation of our relationship with God. He is our light. He is our sustenance. He wants a relationship with us. And our prayers are to go up before Him at all times. And then we would come to a massive curtain. A curtain that was impenetrable. You could not see through it. You could not easily walk through it. And nobody went into the most holy place except once a year. One day each year, the high priest would go into the most holy place on the day of atonement to offer the sacrifice for the sins of the entire community. Inside the Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contained or had in front of it, there's a little bit of conflicting stories, but it contained the Ten Commandments, contained some jars of manna that represented how God had protected and sustained his people, and there was the staff of Aaron that budded, proving that he was God's choice to be the leader of the priests. These things would be in or near the Ark. And above the Ark, is known as the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of the glory of God's presence among his people. God dwelt with his people. And I love the picture of the Day of Atonement. The ark is here with the law that the Bible is very clear. All it can do is point out our sin. God's presence is here. Do you know where the blood of the sacrifice was placed? Right on top of the ark, what was known as the mercy seat. And God in his presence would look down through the blood of the sacrifice and see the sins of his people covered by the blood of the sacrifice. What a picture of our relationship with God. But it had to go on year after year after year Day after day, night after night, certain sacrifices, certain rituals they had to do. It was never, ever enough to fix it. You see, the sun could bring the ice cube close using protective measures in some way, shape, or form. But for these two to have an ongoing relationship, that ice cube must be changed. It has to cease to be an ice cube and be changed into something that can stand in the presence of the Son. The tabernacle points to our need to be changed. Points to the holiness of God and our own sinfulness, but it was this ongoing reminder they needed something more. Because ultimately the tabernacle points us to Jesus Christ. He is the focal point of the Old Testament law and especially the tabernacle. In fact, John picks up on this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He uses these words, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, our English translations smooth this out because it's not a word we would use. But the phrase made his dwelling among us is literally in Greek, he tabernacled. Jesus tabernacled among us. It was a clear reminder linking who Jesus is and his presence coming in flesh to live among his people. It was linking that with the Old Testament tabernacle. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 to 28, the author picks up on this idea. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus is the better tabernacle. He is the presence of God with his people. Now I want to go, and we're going to fly through a whole bunch of scripture really quick, because I want you to see all the elements of the tabernacle picked up in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, we are told to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is the gate. He is the way. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one way you must go through Jesus Christ. He is the perfect sacrifice. In Hebrews 9, 28, we are told that he was sacrificed once for all. It doesn't have to keep going. Jesus doesn't have to keep going to the cross. He sacrificed his life once for all. Jesus is the better wash basin. He is the better cleansing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, after talking about how sinful people can be, Paul says to them, that's what some of you were. You were these horrible sinners. You were these awful people, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. John chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, Jesus is the better lampstand. He declares he is the light of life. He is the light that has come into the world. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 and 2, Jesus is the great intercessor. He is God's greatest communication of himself. Romans eight thirty four. Jesus is interceding as the priests would serve day in and day out. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is serving in the presence of God right now on our behalf. Matthew chapter 27, verses 50 to 51. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain separating the holy place from the most holy place in the temple, which was the permanent tabernacle, was ripped in two from top to bottom. And the way into the most holy place was left open. Because the final sacrifice that was once for all had been given. We could talk about the Old Testament law. We're going to do that next week. We can talk about how we should live, how we should be holy, and we can do that. We can look at the tabernacle and see how we need to be made holy. We should be different, and that is important. But understand, you don't need to be better. You don't need to just work a little harder and clean yourself up. You need to be radically changed. You need to be transformed. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus uses this phrase that we're probably very familiar with. We must be born again. That's what he's talking about. 
We were born into this life, this world, this sinful life. He says, but now you need a new birth. A new birth that is only through Jesus Christ. Similar language in 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation has come. We have new life. Paul used this phrase in Galatians 2.20. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christian, you are not who you were. You are not just a better version of your old self. You are not just cleaned up and fixed up a little bit. You have been made new. Completely changed. And I love this passage in Hebrews 10.19. We have to remember in the Old Testament law, we didn't look at it. But if anyone was to go into the holy of holy place, except in the way that God had prescribed, they were to be struck dead. In fact, there are times that people did that and God's presence strikes them dead. Imagine to a Jewish person hearing these verses. that We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have been transformed through Jesus Christ into someone who can stand in the holy presence of God unashamed and unafraid. And we can understand what that took by looking at the tabernacle. And we can't just look at ourselves and say, I'm okay and you're okay. You just be you. You just do you. Just do whatever makes you happy. We are coming into the presence of a holy God. We must be transformed. Matthew 28, 20, before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says to his people, And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. The all-holy presence of God, just as much as he was in the tabernacle, is with every single Christian and with the collection of the church. He is here among us. That must make us different. We must live transformed lives. And at the end of this sermon series, at the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, tells us where it's all going. The old earth is washed away. New heavens and new earth are created. And God's holy presence descends out of heaven and comes down to earth. And John hears these words, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Tabernacle, God's dwelling among his people is is a picture of God's purpose for all of us. A picture that is brought to full realization and perfection At the end of history, the end of time, when Christ comes back and all those changed by Jesus Christ will live in his perfect presence forever. We, you, are the ice cube. 
you don't deserve to come into the presence of God. I don't deserve to come into his presence. As a sinner, there is something inherently wrong with us. We cannot stand in his presence. Yet God sent his son to die in our place. To take care of all the issues that the tabernacle pointed out. That we might be transformed. Changed. To be his children. Declared righteous. Forgiven once for all. If you're here today and you've been saved by Jesus Christ. You can have the assurance. Katie's class is on. With the women. You can have the assurance. You can stand in the presence of God unashamed, not through anything you've done, but through what Christ has done for you. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ, I cannot possibly tell you just how much you're missing out on. But I hope you've caught a glimpse of it. This all-holy a powerful, sovereign, loving God who wants a relationship with you. A relationship you're unable to attain. But God has done everything necessary and possible to make it happen through his son, Jesus Christ. And I challenge you, don't just follow the ways of this world. Don't just follow your own way and want to do what makes you happy. Be changed by Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the richness of the Old Testament, especially the tabernacle. Father, these things that are just ancient to us from a different culture and a different time. And sometimes the the pictures and the descriptions that we read about don't always translate well for us, but help us open our eyes. Teach us about how holy you are. And in your grace and love, also teach us about how sinful we are. So that just as you were preparing your people, prepare us to see the truth and the grace and the mercy and the salvation that you brought through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for each of us here today that are Christians. May we be amazed in awe and wonder at the grace and the mercy that you have given us through your Son. May we have a deeper understanding of what it means to be sinners saved by grace, transformed into Christ's likeness, made new, born again. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has not received Christ as their Savior, may today be the day that they say, God, I can't do this. I accept your free gift of salvation through your Son, Jesus and his death in my place, me, a wicked sinner. But yet, I accept that I can be made new through your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.